Welcome to the Crime Smith Podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Smith. I want to take a quick moment to thank all of those who offered advice after my first episode launched. You have no idea how much it means to me that you took the time to not only listen to my first episode, but also help me shape the podcast into something you actually want to listen to each week. Of course, immediately after it launched, I wanted to take it down and re-edit, especially after missing the long slurp of coffee I took in the middle of it. Anyway, thanks so much for all of your advice. It truly means the world to me. Before I start, I want you to know that this episode contains profanity due to quotes from the perpetrator. I'll also be talking about rape, so if that's a trigger for you, you may want to avoid listening this week and wait for next week's episode. I really feel like this woman's story needs to be told, and I think her murder brings up important issues about the sentences rapists receive in our country. It highlights the fact that many rapists not only repeatedly offend, but escalate, many times to murder. One of the main reasons I was drawn to this case was the horrible name the media attached to it and the lack of focus on the victim. I must confess, I was brought to tears many times while researching this case. It is completely devastating. The fact that such an accomplished and selfless young woman, someone who devoted her time to her studies and charity work, would be remembered simply as the victim in the Clemson bikini murder case, turns my stomach. This woman, who had offered so much to her community, with nothing but a future of promise ahead of her, a family, friends, an entire community who cherished her, was so unfairly ripped away from them, so disregarded and tossed aside by a brutal monster with a long history of prior attacks. I only hope I can convey the story of her life with the dignity and respect that she deserves. I'm talking about Tiffany Marie Sowers, daughter of Jim and Bren, sister of Trevor and Brianna. Tiffany Marie Sowers, a civil engineering student who somehow found the time in her busy schedule to volunteer with a different charity every summer. Tiffany Marie Sowers, who, despite her family's wealth, never bragged, even choosing to drive the 700 miles to visit her family instead of flying in her father's jet. Tiffany Marie Sowers should not be remembered as a victim of the quote-unquote bikini-top murderer but as the beautiful soul who brought hope and happiness to so many. Tiffany Marie Sowers attended Villa de Chen, a private all-girls Catholic high school located in St. Louis, where she played volleyball and lacrosse. After graduating in 2004, she went on to attend Clemson University in South Carolina. After receiving her undergraduate degree, she was pursuing a graduate degree in civil engineering. Tiffany was a member of Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. She was taking summer classes in order to graduate early. She wanted to start an internship in Denver in July. Tiffany also found time to volunteer at a local charity. Her mother, Bren, described Tiffany as the rock of the family, supportive and strong. Tiffany had been on her way to Hilton Head Island for spring break that spring when she quickly changed plans and went home to St. Louis. Her little brother Trevor and his best friend had been in a car accident. His friend had died. Tiffany's mother Bren said that her daughter had a calming effect on those around her. Tiffany was home alone in her ground-level, four-bedroom apartment the night she was killed. She lived in the reserve at Clemson an upscale apartment complex located just a few miles away from Clemson University. 
This was the kind of neighborhood where people felt safe. There were 177 alarmed units and regular security patrols. One of Tiffany's friends, Erica Cooler, said that when she had reminded her friend to lock up on the way out to dinner, Tiffany said, quote, No one around here would do anything. If they want to take my $100 TV, they can have it, unquote. But Tiffany would lose so much more than her TV that night. Tiffany, Erica, and another friend had met up earlier that Thursday evening. They had gone to dinner at a Mexican restaurant and enjoyed a night of talking and laughing. Afterwards, Erica drove Tiffany back home and watched her go into her apartment around 11.30 at night. Erica said, quote, I remember watching her walk to the door and smiling and thinking, we had a really good time tonight, and I hope there are more good times like this to come. I remember telling her that I loved her before she left, unquote. Tiffany sent a text message to another friend at 12.03 a.m. saying that she planned to stay home for the rest of the night. That was the last time anyone heard from her. Tiffany was raped and murdered between 1 and 1.30 a.m. on May 26, 2006 by Jerry Buck Inman, a convicted sex offender who had been released from prison nine months earlier, a monster who had spent years in prison for rapes he committed in North Carolina and Florida, a predator who had raped a woman in Tennessee and attempted to rape a woman in Alabama just days before Tiffany's murder. Inman had spotted her on her porch outside that day and waited until she was alone. He climbed over the porch railing and snuck into the apartment through the patio door. Inman went into Tiffany's bedroom and she woke up. After a struggle, he tied her hands and asked for her purse, ATM, and credit cards. He got all of those items and then proceeded to sexually assault Tiffany and kill her by using one of her own bikini tops to strangle her. Shortly after, he fled the apartment. With Tiffany's ATM card in hand, Inman stopped at the SunTrust Bank in Clemson and tried four times to use her card to withdraw money from her account. His first attempt was at 3.22 a.m. After the fourth unsuccessful attempt, he left and drove to Wachovia Bank. This was the location where the bank machines captured grainy images of Inman with the bandana over his face. They also caught his vehicle in the background, which looked like a Chevy Blazer or GMC Jimmy. Again unsuccessful, he drove back to his Tennessee home, throwing out Tiffany's stolen items along the side of the road. Around 1.30 in the afternoon that same day, Tiffany's former roommate, Holly Bergman, came by to drop off her key. She found Tiffany's lifeless body on the floor of her bedroom and immediately called 911. Tiffany was wearing only a bra. Her hands were bound and the bikini top, which had been used to strangle her, was still around her neck. None of her neighbors had heard anything. One of them, Seth Chinnis, discussed being questioned by police. He said, quote, It was frustrating I couldn't give them more help. I was 50 feet away. Justin Garrick, who lived in the apartment beneath Tiffany's, said, quote, I never expected anything like that to happen here. Kimberly Perry, another resident of a complex, said, quote, Sometimes we were bad and left keys under the mat. It was just kind of shocking. That kind of thing doesn't happen here often. It's interesting how people never use the words murdered or killed when discussing a murder that happened close to home. It may be the shock and disbelief, the unwillingness to allow themselves to accept what has happened, the possibility that it could have been them. It's always that kind of thing or something like that. There were reports that Tiffany had defensive bruises on her arms, suggesting she had tried to fight off her attacker. Inman also said she fought 
but the coroner stated that other than the evidence of strangulation, her hands being bound, and bruising above her ankles, there was no other bruising. My only explanation for that is that perhaps the coroner, who was not used to doing autopsies on raped and murdered people, made some mistakes. There's absolutely no way that Tiffany had no signs of defensive wounds on her body. The autopsy determined the cause of death was asphyxia due to ligature strangulation. Tiffany's wrists and hands showed injuries consistent with being restrained. The pathologist confirmed evidence of traumatic sexual intercourse. Semen found on the carpet in Tiffany's bedroom was used to create a DNA profile. Swabbed samples from her body matched this DNA. The profile was sent to CODIS, and on June 5th, 2006, 10 days after Tiffany's murder, the DNA profile was matched to Inman. He was arrested the next day, June 6, 2006, at 11.45 at night in Dandridge, Tennessee, after a brief car chase. After the arrest, Tiffany's little brother Trevor, who was just 16 at the time of his sister's murder, said there was a sense of relief but also anger. He stated, quote, I try to ask her for strength so I can be like her and support all the people who are crushed by this, unquote. Tiffany's mother, Bren, remembered a recent conversation she had had with her daughter. She had asked her, quote, so many people love to come talk to you. What is that? And Tiffany answered, quote, what I am is an active listener. I don't just listen and think of what I'm going to say next. I listen to every word they're saying, unquote. Her mother said, quote, I thought, what a profound thing to say, unquote. Inman admitted to the murder and gave a written statement where he said he killed Tiffany because he knew she could identify him. He also stated that he had thrown Tiffany's belongings out the window while he was driving, and that he had hidden the sheets from Tiffany's bed in the woods. In an additional statement he made the following day, he said he had parked at Tiffany's apartment complex looking for a place to rob, and that her door just happened to be the first unlocked one he tried. He said that although he had seen her earlier that day, he thought the house would be empty when he returned, and never meant for anyone to get hurt. He said, quote, I was just looking for some money. This is not what I believe. With his long history of sexual assaults, and the fact that he had spotted Tiffany earlier in the day, I fully believe he intended to rape her. His statement about hers being the first unlocked door is also hard to believe, seeing as how most of the people in the complex had a tendency to leave their apartments unlocked. Tiffany's father, Jim Sauer, said, quote, She had no enemies, and her friends say she knew thousands of people. She was on student government. She was Kappa. She was friends with the football team. Her father also said, quote, Tiffany lived a tremendous life, so our regrets are for the future, not the past. We believe in guardian angels, and we know that Tiffany is with us now. Only three days prior to her murder, Tiffany had volunteered to write letters and bake cookies for convicts through a prison ministry group. Her mother, Bren, said, quote, She wanted a way to make their lives better. She thought everybody deserves a second chance, unquote. What a cruel twist of fate that the person who brutally attacked and murdered her was exactly the type of person she was trying to help. Jerry Buck Inman was indicted for murder, kidnapping, criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, and burglary in the first degree in November of 2006. In August of 2007, Inman filed a motion to enter a guilty plea to murder and receive a jury trial for sentencing. The state informed the court it did not consent to this position. In September of 2007, the state opposed the motion. A competency hearing was held in August of 2008, and Inman was determined competent to stand trial. 
He then entered his guilty pleas to all of the charges, and his sentencing was deferred until September of 2008. From September 8th to September 11th of 2008, testimony was received during a non-jury sentencing proceeding. During the proceedings, Tiffany was described as being close to her family. She was constantly on the phone with her mother and siblings, a dedicated student who gave good advice and made friends easily. She was involved in national charity organizations and a dedicated member of the Catholic Church. One of her roommates, Christina Morello, presented photos of Tiffany at various Clemson University events and talked about her contagious laugh. Morello said that Tiffany was the type of person who showed compassion and care for others. The arresting officer, Chief Deputy McCoig, testified that after he read Inman his Miranda rights, Inman started talking about Tiffany. He said, quote, After that shit right there, I'm a fucking animal, unquote. He also said that Inman told him he had the habit of driving around looking for attractive women. Inman told McCoig that when he spotted one he liked, he would wait until they fell asleep to go inside. He said that he thought Tiffany would be asleep when he entered the apartment. Agent Jeffrey Kinley, who had discussed the extradition process with Inman and whether the charges qualified him for the death penalty, said Inman stated, quote, That's what I want. I killed a 20-year-old college student with everything to live for. Unquote. An anonymous witness for the prosecution testified about her rape that occurred in 1987. She said that Inman came into her apartment in the middle of the night with a revolver and forced her to tie up her roommate. He then tied her up as well and held his gun to her head while he raped her, forcing the roommate to watch. Another of his victims testified that on the morning of May 23, 2006, just three days before Tiffany was murdered, she had left the house to take her daughter to the bus stop. She returned to her house around lunchtime when Emin approached her from behind. He covered her mouth and held a knife to her throat. After she screamed, he put her on the floor and tied her hands behind her back. Emin asked her if there was cash in the house and she said no. He then told her that he had already found $250. Inman forced her into the bedroom and after pulling her pants down, and discovering she was on her period, he put her in the bedroom closet and told her he was going to take her car. Once he left, she was able to get to the phone and hit redial. When she saw Inman's picture on CNN two weeks later, she identified him as her attacker. A victim from Tennessee testified that she woke up to Inman on top of her with a knife to her throat around 5 o'clock in the morning. He asked her to show him where the money and jewelry was, and she did. He took her back to the bedroom and used her bra to tie her hands behind her back. All this time, her little girl was in the room crying. Inman raped the woman while holding his knife to her throat. After he was done, he took her to the bathroom, where he made her clean herself twice with shampoo. He made them get valuables from the house and placed them on the bed, and then he took the woman and her little girl to the bathroom, closed the door, and left. She left the bathroom and called police. She saw his picture on the news two weeks later. Witness for the defense, Dr. David Price, testified about his evaluation of Inman. He stated that Inman was mentally and emotionally disturbed at the time of Tiffany's murder, claiming that Inman's capacity was substantially impaired. Price confirmed that Inman was receiving mental health treatment for the 19 years he was in prison, and that he had major depressive disorder with psychotic features, bipolar disorder, and psychorhythmic disorder. Price also said that Inman had a profound impairment in his overall ability to function. He talked about the abusive environment Inman was raised in as a child, with his alcoholic father and his mother 
father who had been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. Price testified that Inman only had one stable relationship as a child, the one he had with his maternal grandfather. But the grandfather had died when Inman was young and his father had molested him. As a result, Inman began experimenting with drugs at 10, ran away at 13, and was living on the streets at the age of 15. At 17, he went to jail for the first time. While no one deserves to grow up that way, I still can't accept his abuse as an excuse for rape and murder. I do understand that mental illness is real and that Inman should have been receiving treatment for his disorders. I also understand that as a victim of abuse, he most likely has PTSD, which can be devastating as well. My problem is that if he was already diagnosed and receiving treatment in prison for his disorders, did they not know that he was a risk? Did the doctors treating him not see the animal he had become? Were his previous crimes not heinous enough to keep him incarcerated? How could they not see that he would continue to attack until someone stopped him for good? On cross-examination, Dr. Price said he did not bring the 15 notebooks he had used to make his determinations about Inman's mental state. He admitted that Inman had the ability to make choices because he had stopped himself from killing the woman in Florida, did not harm the child in Tennessee, and stopped himself before killing a fellow inmate in North Carolina. Licensed clinical social worker Dr. Marty Loring also testified on behalf of the defense. She talked about Inman's drug addiction issues and his suicide attempts. Inman had attempted suicide a total of seven times. Six of these attempts happened while he was in prison. His suicide attempts included slitting his wrist, cutting his jugular vein, swallowing six inches of barbed wire, and attempting to starve himself. Inman's older sister also testified. She talked about his lack of friends and how the family had moved frequently. She described how her paternal grandfather, not the maternal grandfather that Inman had been close to, would blindfold her, tie her hands to the bed, sexually abuse both her and her brother. Again, I know that there are long-lasting effects from child abuse, but I just cannot accept it as an excuse for harming an innocent person. During his trial, Inman said, quote, I've shown by my actions both in and out of prison that I cannot be rehabilitated. I don't say any of this to be disrespectful, but your honor, in all reality, there's really only one sentence appropriate for someone like me, and I ask you to impose that sentence. Unquote. Just hours after he made the statement to the judge, Jerry Buck Inman was sentenced to death. He showed no reaction. Tiffany's mother, Bren Sowers, said, quote, Putting him to death isn't going to make me feel any better, but I would need some sort of guarantee that he would never, ever be out of jail again. He had no business being out this time, and if the system is going to fail and let him out again, that would be a problem for me. I have two more children. This man shouldn't be walking free with the ability to hurt anyone else, unquote. On September 21, 2011, Jerry Buck Inman went to the South Carolina Supreme Court in an attempt to appeal his death sentence. In his appeal, Inman claimed he had an unfair trial due to witness bullying. His lawyer stated that Bob Ariel, a lawyer for the prosecution, had intimidated a social worker testifying on Inman's behalf. Ariel told social worker Marty Loring that because she was testifying in South Carolina but only licensed to practice in Georgia, she could be facing charges for practicing without a license. Loring informed the judge that she felt threatened and was unsure whether she would be able to represent Inman's best interest. Loring later said that she felt she could have done a better job relaying information to the court about Inman's mental state. There were seven months between the time she interviewed his family and testified in court. This gap occurred as a result of Ariel's threats. 
Inman's defense attorneys felt that had Loring not been bullied, the testimony would have been more likely to get Inman a life sentence instead of the death sentence he received. Inman's guilty plea and death sentence was affirmed. The court found that although Loring had been intimidated by the prosecution, the misconduct was not severe enough for the entire case to be thrown out. Justice Don Beatty wrote, quote, Although we find the solicitor committed prosecutorial misconduct, we conclude Inman's sentence of death was not imposed in violation of his due process rights. We conclude that the sentence of death was not the result of passion, prejudice, or any other arbitrary factor. Unquote. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Crime Smith. If you liked the story, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures related to the case, head over to crimesmith.com and check out the blog. To provide feedback or offer future episode suggestions, click the contact link on the website to send me an email. You can also send me a message through the Crimesmith Facebook page. Please join me next week for another episode of Crimesmith, a true crime podcast. While you're waiting, check out these other podcasts. Now that I'm older, Can We Cult? And I Got the Hell Out. See you next week. Thanks for listening.